Turn in your Bibles to Revelations chapter 2. You know, last time I was teaching to you, I was talking to you about love letters from John. And we went through uh, the five chapters of 1 John. We went through the one chapters of 2nd and 3rd John. And we talked about those love letters of John to his churches. Now he records some love letters to Jesus, from Jesus to his churches. And they're John's churches too. So whose churches are they? I think they're Jesus' church. They're the Lord's church. It's the church is his bride. He has chosen us to be called out and to become a church. And I think that's so important for all of us in ministry and all of you who serve here and serve at other churches for you to recognize that anything that we do, any ministry we have, anything that we oversee and is on his behalf. It's his church. We need to remind ourselves of that. It is not our church. It's his church. Last week, we saw that John went from being a prisoner to being a pastor. Caesar and society wanted to put him in jail, wanted to take care of him. So they exiled him to the island of Patmos, and they shut him up. And they said, finally, we got rid of that guy. God took the opportunity. While John was there, he sought him took the opportunity to give him this great vision and this great writing that we have in front of us and that we're looking at tonight. We saw the vision that we read uh, just before we had worship and that that vision ended with, uh, with uh, talking about the writing, the things that you see, the things that are, and the things that will shortly come to pass. But that vision that John had changed him. His ex- exile and his trouble brought John to a place of growth. And doesn't that happen to us so often? When we're in a crisis, when we're in a tough place, when things aren't going so well, we decide to get serious about God and we pray. When things are kind of horrible and falling apart all around us, we get on the phone and we call our friends to pray. But when everything's going okay, we kind of just put that on hold for a while and go back to handling things ourselves. Well, that's what happened to John. So these are seven actual letters two, seven actual churches. They're a circular letter, and they're actually laid out in the way it's written there in in, uh, uh, Revelation in that first chapter, and the way that they're laid out in order would be the way that you would travel. You would come to Ephesus, which was a major seaport. You would go from there, you'd go uh, to the north, and then you would follow through all the way down to Laodicea. And if you look on a map, matter of fact, that's a homework assignment. Lay it out on a map and go north and then go south. And you'll see it's just a big circle and a big horseshoe. And most of the letters of Paul and most of the letters of Peter and most things, they were circulatory letters. They went around to the other um, churches. Probably in this case, there were seven letters written. Each one had a personal little note. But the, here's the interesting thing that all seven churches got to see the letter to the other churches. Now, could you imagine if I wrote to you a letter and I pass it out to everybody in the room, and I wrote to you a letter and I pass it out to everybody in the room, and I said, gee, Bill, you're really strong here, but you're kind of weak on this one. You know, David, I really appreciate this about you, but I got this other couple things here that I got to tell you about. And I laid that out. And then I passed it out to everybody. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. Now, why in the world would he do that? So they all saw the strengths. They all saw the weaknesses of each other. So two of these churches were pretty bad. Two of them were pretty good. And three of them kind of had a mixed report. So why to all seven? 
Because our pride would say, I, yeah, tell them the good things about me. Tell them those wonderful things that I've done for you, Lord. But don't tell them those places where I messed up. That would be kind of discouraging. Could you imagine if we did that to the churches up here on the mountain? That we had a letter to Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks and then another letter to uh, Twin Peaks Community Church and another one to Lake Gregor Community and another one to Church of the Woods and another one to Calvary Chapel Lake Arrowhead, another one to the Catholic Church, another one to the Baptist Church. And we did that and we wrote these letters and then we passed it around uh, via the Mountain News to everybody. Wouldn't that be exciting to see what God would do? So what's the application for us? And what can we get out of these letters that can help us as an individual and help us as a church. We're going to see that the strengths are pointed out. And I think we should continue in those things that were strong in this early church or these early churches. The weaknesses are pointed out. And if they were weak then, they're probably weak today. And we probably should continue to try to correct those. We will see some warnings and some admonitions, things that we're supposed to do. We probably should take heed to those. And there's a few promises in here for us. And we should hold on to those promises and try to uh, apprehend them and to um, maintain, uh, maintain those promises. And I think that we should do this as both individuals and as a church. So that's what we're, the way we're going to approach these seven letters. What strengths can we hold on to? Can you hold on to strengths that these seven churches had? What weaknesses do these seven churches have that maybe one of us has, maybe two of us have, or maybe we have collectively, collectively as a body. What warnings should we, should we take heed to or admonitions? And what promises can we appropriate? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is to us individually. We thank you that it's to us collectively. We thank you that it is timeless. And so, Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So these letters are similar in their structure. They are all addressed to a particular people. They all have an introductory statement about Jesus. Uh, there's a statement concerning uh, the condition of the church. Uh, there's a verdict in some cases about the condition of the church. There's a command from Jesus. There's a general exhortation to all Christians. And there's a promise of a reward. Now, Ephesus was a geographical center of the Roman Empire. Rome was kind of on the western side, and Palestine and all of that area was on the eastern side, and uh, Ephesus, uh, Asia, was right in the middle of it. But it had also become the center of the Christian world. The, the church started in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It moved up the coast to Antioch. It moved across into Galatia and, and, Col and Colossians and those areas. Then it came into Ephesus, and then it moved on over into Macedonia. So this church was founded by Paul in about 50 to 54 A.D. Timothy and Peter had both had uh, time there. They both had written to this church. Now it's a big megachurch. Or no, I'm sorry. It's not a big megachurch. It is a group of hundreds of small home fellowships or fellowships that meet in a hall or they meet in a restaurant or they meet around a tree, or they meet down by the river. That's the only type of church that they had and they knew. So that's the concept of the church at that time. One Roman emissary was writing back to the emperor in Rome, and he said this to them. He said, from Ephesus, he says, there are so many Christians that were having to close the temples. 
the pagan temples, the temples of Diana and all the other temples were there. There were so many Christians, it was expanding so fast that temples were being closed. That is an exciting thing. I remember reading about the Finney revivals, that when Finney would come into a town and revival would take place, the churches would explode and the people were being converted so fast that that factory owners would shut their factory down so Dr. Finney could come in and preach to their employees. Made him, you're on the clock, I'm going to pay you. You've got to listen to this Dr. Finney as he preached. The next thing that started to happen is the brothels and the bars started to close. And whole cities were completely changed because of the power of that. That's what this sounds like was happening there in the first century. So in chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about the seven stars and the seven candlesticks again. And those, the word for messenger is angel or pastor. And the lampstands are the seven churches. But it's important that Jesus is the center to the church. He is central to the church, and it should always be recognized that he is central to all the churches. So we look forward to that. So let's look at the uh, letter to Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, this is chapter 2, verse 1, write these things. Says, he who holds the seven stars in, the right, in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do not do your first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I know your works, not your professions. I know your works. And when he says, I know, which he's going to say to all seven churches, it talks about his omniscience. He knows everything. He knows everything about us as an individual. He knows everything about us as a collective church. He knows everything about me and Brandon and the rest of the pastors here that work. He knows all things. He knows about us. In verses 2 and 3, he lists the strengths. He said, you tested those who were false teachers or false prophets. You called them out, is the way it's talked about. You did not become weary in doing that. And that is such an important thing. We saw that in the, in the um, epistles of John, in 1 John, that it was important because of the false teachers that were getting into the early church. And the word for patience there is steadfast patience. You were very patient in that process. And so that was a strength of that church. And I think that's a strength that we should have as a church today. That's one of those things that we should hang on to. In Acts chapter 20, Paul warned the elders of Ephesus with these words. Um, Let's see. For he called them together. They came down from Ephesus and he met them. Uh, a few miles south. For I know this, that after my departure, sa- after my departure from Ephesus, savage wolves will come in among you and not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember 
that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul had told the church at Ephesus these times were coming, these people were going to come in and try to um, discourage you and try to, to subvert you. In verse 4 we see the weakness. Nevertheless, despite all the good that you have, you have left your first love. I think it's important to recognize, too, the distinction between leaving and losing. It doesn't say you have lost your first love. It says you have left your first love. You can lose something by accident. You don't remember where your keys or your phone were. And isn't that, isn't that a kind of a, historical time, a hysterical time now when we lose our phone? I mean, we just can't survive without knowing where that phone is. And, and we, uh, we have a rough time with it. But when we leave something, we know usually where we left it. Um, when we leave something, we also know where to find it. First love. What is he talking about? Is he talking about the first love that John talked about in First John, to love your brothers? Remember, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God, or behold, uh, that we should love one another, those things that we learned, those things that we th- sought? Or is it the love for God, or is it both? You know, we can't say that we love our brothers if we don't love God. And we can't prove that we love God if we don't love our brothers. And then he tells us something to do. And oh, if you want to have fun, here's a little, here's, here's something that, that uh, challenged me. Go through these seven letters and put a D in the margin for a description of Jesus. Put a P in the margin if it's a promise. And write the word do if it's something you're supposed to do. Put a plus sign if it's a positive trait for that church and put a negative sign if it's a negative for that church. It's really a good homework assignment if any of you are challenged up to that. So a D for a description of Jesus, a plus sign if it's a positive statement, a negative sign if it's a negative statement, a do if it's something for us to do, and a P if it's a promise. That was kind of fun. This just kind of helps you look at it. Now, now Now I've got a... I don't have any room for notes in my margins anymore, but, but that, that worked out fine. So something for you to do. Remember, verse 5, remember something for us to do. When we're in that state, when it's been brought to our attention that we have lost our first love or we aren't as, as committed as we once were, we are to remember to repent and return. Remember from where we were. Remember that relation that we shipped that we had with the Lord in particular, but maybe with others, maybe with others in the fellowship. Remember those days when we had that sweet fellowship with each other, when we spent time with each other. Repent, not a feeling. Oh, I feel sorry about that, but it's a decision. It's a turning away. And I think if you look at the prodigal son, you get a perfect example of that. When he was in the pig pen, the first thing he did is he remembered dad's home. He remembered his own bedroom and, uh, and a servant to bring him his uh, nightcap at night, his warm milk and, and his cookies or whatever he had. He remembered what it was like. And then he said, I'm sorry. And then he returned. So he did the same type of thing. Return to your first works is what it says here. And what were those? What were your first works? What were my first works? Remember how you used to spend a lot of time in the Word, maybe more time than you do now? Remember how you used to pray, even got on our knees, even uh, fasted and prayed? 
Remember the joy that we had in getting together with others, and sometimes we've lost that, and sometimes we don't quite do that as often and as exciting as we do as as we should. Remember how we were busy about telling people about Jesus when we first got saved. Wanted to make sure everybody that we knew was brought into that. Remember from whence you had fallen. Then in verse 6, he talks about the Nicolaitans, or literally to conquer or control the people. Uh, Some see this as an offshoot of the Gnostics, which we talked about in 1 John. But most important is to note how the Lord feels about those Nickelodeons. He says there, I think it's in verse 6 at the very end, he says, in the deeds of the Nickelodeons, which I also hate. The Lord hates sin, and he hates the deeds of the Nickelodeons, the things that they were doing. We'll talk a little bit more about them in one of the other churches. In verse 7, he talks about those who have an ear. Let him hear. This was not written to just the Ephesians, but all the people that got this letter. This was written to all of us. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just the seven churches, but all the churches. So if you have an ear, listen up, pay attention. Um, The letters were meant for us. And then the reward that's promised. It says in verse uh, 7, yeah, in verse 7, to him who overcomes, I will give him to eat in the tree of life. Jesus seems to be speaking about overcoming the coldness of their heart and the lack of love towards God and towards their fellow believers, marked by leaving their first love. It wasn't necessarily an he who overcomes sin in general, but this particular sin. And I like the promise that was given to, to them. It's the same promise that's been given to us. It's what Pastor Brandon taught us was Zoe life. It's that Zoe life. The promise to return to Eden, to the paradise, to where the tree of life was. Um, the effects of the curse has been rolled back. And through our walking with Jesus, through our letting him live in us, we can have that Zoe life today. We can have that redeemed life and be back in that relationship with the way that God wants us to be. So now to the church of Smyrna, verse 8. And to the church of Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are uh, of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus is described further uh, in the church of Smyrna because he's called the first and the last. Now in the first chapter, he's also called the first and last, the Alpha and the Omega. And that is the beginning and the last. And that's really the, the first first and the last, like in a chain of events. But here the words are different. It first, the first, is the word is foremost. It is the first in that particular category of who he is. And I think he's the king of kings. So he is foremost 
as the king of kings. And the word for last is he's the uttermost. He is the last that there can be. He's the same. He's the king of kings. He's the foremost king, and he's the uttermost king. So it's a positional thing, not a timing thing that he has. There were no weaknesses mentioned in this uh, particular church. They were going to suffer persecution, and they continued to do their works. And remember those encouraging words that Paul wrote to Timothy? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You remember those words, don't you? They've been quoted to us over and over that you know persecution is a normal thing for us who believe. Well, that's true of this group of people. Many times they've been persecuted. But you know, a lot of times when a church is persecuted, it pairs down the church. The weak fall away. And what you're left with is a few serious, dedicated people who can get together and pray more earnestly and be more committed. And then from that, sometimes springs up revival. It says it's a poor church, but called rich by Jesus. Rich because they had the things that matter, rich in the things that God had given and the things that God was looking for. And again, he knows. And that should be comforting words for us. Throughout this, these seven letters, he says he knows a whole bunch of time. And when you read tomorrow's paper or you turn on the news, just say, he knows. He knows. And that should be something that really comforts us. Christ tells of the Jews who were claiming to be God's chosen, but they were actively persecuting the church. You know, Jesus came to the Galilee, to Judea, to Jerusalem, and the Jewish people rejected him. Now his church is coming to the Jewish people, and they're rejecting him. In other words, the leaders in the synagogues, they're not helping to build the expression of Jesus Christ, his bride, his church, what they should be doing is saying, hey, many of our Jewish brothers have become Christians and we can see how this is working in their lives. We want to come alongside. We want to help you because we're God's chosen people. But no, that's not the way the Jews were treating the Christians. The Jews were fighting against the Christians. They were, they were causing them great, great problems. And so that's one of the things that was happening here. Actually, the Jews in the days of Polycarp, it's recorded that they were actually the ones who persecuted him the most. And he was a disciple of John who took over the church of Pergamos at that time, the next church, or uh, Smyrna, I think it is. So in verse 10, don't fear the persecution that is coming. Be faithful until death and you will receive the crown of life. Don't fear the persecution that's coming. Don't fear the mess that's coming. Don't fear whatever is coming because we're going to have the crown of life someday. Hang on to that promise. Verse 11, and again, the encouragement to hear, to listen, always to the church's plural, and another promise that we won't be hurt by the second death, and that's because we have eternal life. We have that life now. And so in verses 12 to 17, the next church, the Pergamos. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. There's another description of, of Jesus. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. 
But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam and taught that Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have those Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Pergamos was the headquarter of Caesar worship of Asia. So where Ephesus was the headquarters of Diana and other uh, of the pagan gods, Pergamos was the place and was a city that was, was extremely loyal to Rome. So he describes himself, or Jesus, a little bit more of a description. He has the two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. Antipas, in verse 13, was a martyr and he was martyred for refusing to worship Caesar. He was a faithful witness. Wouldn't it be great that that was said about us, that we remained faithful unto death and we were a faithful witness? In verses 14 and 15, we see their weaknesses. They allowed men to teach false doctrine. And yes, that's kind of one of my, my responsibilities is to make sure nobody comes in here and teaches false doctrine to you. But you know what? You're pretty smart Bible students. It's your job to make sure we don't teach false doctrine too. And so it's your job to know what it is that we're looking at. Balaam was teaching sexual immorality. And it was the beginning of probably preaching for hire. And if you go back into Numbers 22 to 25, you can read that story where, preacher, where he was getting paid to uh, preach against Israel. The Nicolaitans may... Um, Think of themselves as even taking that another step. And this may be where the professional clergy started to come in, where the church started to divide the laity from the, from, from the, from the uh, men of the cloth. And I think that's probably one of the things that caused the church to start going the wrong way. The reason the church was so dynamic in those early years, it was just a whole bunch of people loving Jesus and telling other people about Jesus. And people were stepping up all over and taking leadership roles in the church, not by some hierarchy and some uh, positional type of thing. But those were the types of things that John was writing to the church of Pergamos about. He says in verse 16, again, the word repent. He likes that word, doesn't he? Keeps bringing it up. True believers are called to repent. And that's something that you should not be afraid to do. When you know you've messed up, when you know you have something going on in your life, when you know you've been uh, struggling with something, it's okay just to repent from it and say, I'm making a decision to put this aside. And then in verse 17 again, he says, pay attention, give ear. Hidden manna, Jesus is the bread of life. You know, every Sunday night we celebrate communion. We celebrate the bread of life and the, spilling, the spilled blood that was spilled to take away our sins. And even though we represent that with a cracker, I want everyone to know that that is only a symbol. We are, we are recognizing that symbol as the bread of life. When we take that, it's a serious thing. It's the bread of life, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ. And so always go to the communion table seriously, taking the bread of life and taking the spilt blood when you go there. Never let it become just a routine. Hidden manna, the bread of life. 
white stone, a symbol of legal victory in that day. It was also a symbol of an athletic victory. And it was also something that was given to a guest as a welcome thing. And your name would be written on it. A new name accepted by God. A bride receives a new name. Didn't you ladies, when you got married, get a new name? Then why do you think Jesus wouldn't give his bride a new name? You're going to get a new name when we get there. Praise God for that. Tyre Thyra, verses 18 to 26. And to the angel of the church of Tyrethiah write these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like the flames of fire, and his feet are fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. In other words, they're growing works. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent for her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds." I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your words, according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest of Tyrethyra, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Their strengths, well, another... um, uh, description was repeated from uh, chapter 1 about the, uh, the eyes and the feet of fire and the brass. Uh, their strengths, works, love, service, faith, and patience, and works that increase. So a continuing moving in the right direction. But in verses 20 to 23, it talks about the impure doctrine. They allowed someone to teach, to lead, and to seduce the people into believing they could engage in sexual sins. Now you have to think of the culture of that time because the culture was very sensual. Uh, The um, various um, temples that were in play had temple prostitutes who would come down into the town and they would prostitute themselves so that there was a a really a, a place for sexual immorality. And those people were getting saved and coming into the church. But that was a lifestyle that they were coming out of. That was something that they were having to hang on to. It was their culture. But you know, in the church today, uh, we're finding some teaching that's saying it's okay to compromise a little. It's okay to go a little bit into this area or that area or whatever. And, um, uh, you know, there's a a lot of different things that we could talk about. It's okay to um, uh, move into the area of of, uh, allowing people with different uh, sexual uh, norms than the Bible teaches to be part of our fellowship, maybe be ordained as a pastor and things like that. That teaching is creeping in. 
Uh, we had a discussion about this down at Costa Mesa the day we were writing a, a, a handbook for employees, and I stuck to the, the, the position that we discourage the use of alcohol. That was the statement I wanted in there. And there was some pushback to that. Well, you know, we really can't do that because we can't uh, tell people they can't do in the privacy of their own home or with their wife for dinner. We can't really tell them that. Well, yeah, we really can't. You know, that's their conviction and so on and so forth. But we can publicly say we discourage the use of alcohol, period. And then if you have that liberty and you have that freedom, great, do it. And so we went on to put down some rules for staff and pastors that we felt were important. You can't drink in public. You can't drink with each other like that. Because we had a couple of people who were taking liberties and starting to teach a doctrine that just wasn't, it just wasn't, just wasn't the Calvary way that we do things. So we, we had to go through this discussion. And that's kind of what concerns me is that within the church today, we're starting to allow things to creep in. And we're starting to say, well, yeah, we can compromise in that just a little bit. You know, we yeah, I guess if you guys really love each other and, and you've committed yourselves together before God, uh, yeah, you can live together for, you know, but we should get you married here pretty soon. No, you can't do that. We can't do that. We can't come. Well, that's what was happening in this church. And, but in verse 24, and I love this about this because I, I think this is so important for us to always remember, there's always a remnant. There's been a remnant since the beginning of time. There was a remnant. They got off a boat. It was Noah and his kids, and that was a remnant of righteous people. And that remnant has always been around through the history that's recorded for us in the Bible and through the church. It says, as there, they were always has been in the church, um, not to go to the way of the false doctrine. And it talks about the depths of Satan there. These are secret do- doctrines. Remember when we talked about the Gnostics? The Gnostics have this thing like, you know, some of us guys... You know, Dave and Mike and, and uh, uh, Denny and I, we, we've, we know some things that you guys don't know. And uh, should we bring those guys, should we bring the rest of them in or just, just keep it to ourselves? That's what the Gnostics were doing. They, they had these secret things and these secret doctrines. And then it made it special and then everybody wanted some of it. And then it would grow and it would grow and it would grow. And so those are the kinds of things that was creeping into the church and was taking over. The depths of Satan... In verse 25, he admonishes us to hold fast. So you'd write do next to that. Hold fast to what you know is true, but hold fast to what you have until I come, he says. And then in verses 26 to 29, a promise of an overpowering victory at the end of times. Isn't that great for us to hang on to? That promise. Chapter 3, Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works and you have a name that you are uh, alive and you are, but you were dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. And I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and uh, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they have the, and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot his name out of the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis. 
He who has the seven spirits and the seven stars, the power of the Holy Spirit to give to the messengers of the church. Jesus is again describing himself as uh, the author of these letters. The church had a lifeless profession, it says there in the first, first part about it. Um, they needed the power of the Holy Spirit. They professed, but they weren't doing anything. In verses 2 and 3, it talks about being watchful. Come up. Come on, wake up, you guys. He's speaking to the remnant. You have a strength, a little bit of strength for what remains. Remember the things that you have received. Remember those things that God has given you. How often we forget to remind ourselves and thank the Lord for those victories of times past, those times he has helped us. And then again, repent from the lifelessness that this church had. The remnant, this remnant had not given in to worldliness, but they had a victorious walk. They were walking and dressed in white. And one day we will all be dressing in white. And it would be such a joy and such a privilege for us as a church to see each other all dressed in white. To see you positionally instead of how we really are would be just a wonderful thing. We wouldn't be able to criticize each other. We wouldn't be able to pick on each other because we'd see you all dressed in white. We would know that you've experienced the bread of life and the, and the blood of Christ. In verse 5, it talks about being an overcomer. He will be clothed in white holiness, not having the, his name blotted out of the book of life. Okay, here we go, the book of life. Let's talk about this one and having your name blotted out. Can you even do that? Two views on the book of life. The book uh, of all, one view is that the book is a book of all the names of everyone who ever received and was given physical life. And that the Lord would have to go through and blot out the names of the people who would not believe. It was, re, it was put together, this, this idea of this, so that those would be for whoever, whosoever will may be saved. You know that verse, right? Whosoever, that means everybody could be saved. So God could sit down and he gets this book out and he says, I'm going to put down everybody's name because it's my heart that everybody will be saved. And I'm writing their name down to prove that I want everybody to be saved. I hope, Dad, I hope I don't ever have to blot anybody's name out. But over time, he's had to, and that was, that's one concept in the book of life. The other one is that only the names that received spiritual life were written into that book. Well, therefore, uh, a promise that their names would not be blotted out. Well, you, blot, you would never blot a name out of the book of life because the Bible teaches us, and we've, we all believe, that once we've received it by grace, we can't lose it. We can't, we can't lose it. And you walk away from it, a whole other story, okay? And so you can do all these things. Now, some of you are going to have a lot of questions about those books and about blotting out your name. And I would encourage you to get together at Bill's and have a, just a great conversation about it because you will figure it out. But, you know, whichever view you want to take, are, they're both views. I, can get you, I could get you 20 commentaries on each one, and there's another 20 commentaries on other views too. And then I'm just, just uh, having a, a little bit of a talk back there with Pastor Dave earlier tonight, and he says, well, you know, you got another book too, the Lamb's Book of Life. And so he threw that one in there just to make sure we kept things uh, confused enough. But the thing is, is that, you know, I personally like the one that everybody's name was written down. I can't imagine that God wanted anybody to perish. Whosoever will may be saved. I think that is key to a loving God. And I think it really breaks his heart when he has to take a name out of the book that he wanted everybody saved. Um, 
But the further promise that's in there is that our names will be confessed before his father and the angels. And then in verse 6, he says again, he who has an ear. In other words, listen up, listen up. He who has an ear, listen what the Spirit says to the churches. Verses 7 to 13, the church of Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write these things, says he who is holy, he who is true, he who, is the key of, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and he who shuts and no one can open. Again, he's describing himself. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make, uh, make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, indeed I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to preserve, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon you, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he who shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. You have a little strength, Philadelphia, he says there. But you've kept his word and you have not denied his name. So those you would put a little plus plus mark by because those were positive things. The Jews in verse 9, the open door to the Jews in their synagogues. He had the key of David he talked about in his description. That would be saying, I have authority over the Jews. I have those keys of David. Again, the Jews were still his chosen people. He's the one that he's poured out to. At this time, they're not helping the church, his bride, to be established. In verse 10, because you have preserved, I will protect you. In verse 11, he's coming soon, so hold on to what you have. And in verse 12, he gives you uh, the promise, and me the promise, that we will have a place of honor. Pay attention. Listen up again in verse 13. And then to the last church, the church of Laodicea, he says in verse 14, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write these things, says the Amen, the faithful, and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Again, he's describing himself. I am the Amen. I am the faithful. I am the true witness. I was at the beginning of creation. Not that he was created, but that he was there doing the creating. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see as many as I love I rebuke and chasten therefore be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and dine with him and he with me 
To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. You put a P by this one, okay? Promise. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea, he adds, faithful and true witness to himself, the beginning of all creation. But he calls them a lukewarm church. The worst of a position of our faith, it sickens God if we are lukewarm, if we're not hot, if we're not cold. The weakness is they were prideful, they were arrogant, self-reliant, complacent, rich and in need of nothing, almost like talking about the church today or could be. In verses in verse 18, God's gold, divine righteousness and genuine faith, white garments, practical righteousness for our daily life. And Laodicea was known as a, a city for banking, for textiles, for medicine, especially the ISAB, and they were located on the trade route going from east to west. It was a very important city. And the Lord loves, in verse 19, and he rebukes those that he loves and he chastens. Who the Lord loves, he chastens like a father does his son. Isn't that true? Ryan, you love your boys, don't you? You're going to correct them. You're going to chase them. I, re- I remember my dad loved me. I know he did because he chastened me and corrected me from time to time. He calls them to repent and to continually be zealous. So important for us. And then the invitation, verse 20, you write do next to that one. Jesus gives to this lukewarm church the great invitation to anyone, to anyone to come. He knocks at the door asking entry to come in, to dine with us, desiring fellowship, desiring intimacy with us. It only happens as we respond to the knock. But the promise is made to all, if anyone hears my voice. Overcomers get to sit with him on his throne. Praise God. What a promise that is. Again, if you have ears to hear, listen up what he says to the churches. I find it interesting at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus, as he finished the illustration of all the teaching that he gave in those three beautiful chapters, He says, let me tell you about a story about a man who built his house upon a rock. And he who hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And he tells that parable. He who hears these sayings of mine and doesn't do them, I will liken him to the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And he tells that parable. So Jesus thought at the Sermon on the Mount, it was important enough at the end of his message to say, listen to what I've said and do it. That's what he said here in each one of these letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, after you go home and do your homework tonight and put your pluses and your minuses and your stuff in there, you could read through this. Here's the strengths that were mentioned to these churches. Let me just read them to you and get a flavor for the strengths. You were tested... And you tested those who were false prophets. You called them out. You did not become weary. You were patient. You had a steadfast patience. You, were, you bore up well in times of suffering. You were rich in the things of God. Sometimes you were poor by the world standards. 
I saw your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience, and your works were even growing. There was always a remnant that kept the faith. Some of you kept the word of God, and you honored my name. So those are the, the strengths that were mentioned to these seven churches. Here's the weaknesses that were mentioned. You left your first love. You allowed men to teach false doctrine, the doctrine of Balaam, sexual immorality, preaching for hire, the Nicolaitans, the beginning of the clerical system. You allowed impure doctrines to come into the church to teach and to lead and to seduce, to seduce other people into believing that they could engage in sex and be saved and be, and be Christians all at the same time. We have that today with the same types of things trying to creep in. Here's the warnings and the admonitions that you might have found. Repent, 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 and repent. Okay, that's what he said. Do your first works. Be faithful unto death. Repent, repent. Judgment is coming. Keep the faith. Repent, repent. There's a lot of them in there. Strengthen what remains. Those of you who remain strength, keep the faith and be zealous and repent. Promises that he gave us. You'll inherit the tree of life and the crown of life. You'll be given hidden manna. There's a stone that's going to be given to you with a new name written on it. You're going to rule over nations. You're going to get a morning star. You'll be honored and clothed in white. There'll be a place, of, of, there'll be a place in God's presence a new name, and you will share Christ's throne. Those are the things that we can learn today and we can apply to our lives from these seven letters. So the worship team is going to come forward and we're going to take time to kind of absorb some of these things. We're going to participate in the bread of life and the juice. We're going to make sure that we recognize the importance of the things that uh, uh, God wants us to hear.